0: Well, thank you, Lauren, for your kind and insulting introduction. Um, I begged Lauren, begged and begged and begged, I have texts to prove this, to give me two weeks with you, with the Gospel of John, because there's so much to cover. And she said, there's no way the women can handle you for two weeks in a row. So you just get one Wednesday morning. So because of that, um, I'm not going to show you those texts cause they may not exist, but some of those texts do exist. Um, because of that, I'm going to pull an Abner on you. I'm going to talk really fast, but I'm going to prepare you for Abner. I'm sure he's coming soon. And so at least you'll be ready and your ear will be tuned to somebody who talks really, 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 really fast. Um, I have all these notes I'm happy to send to you. There's 30 pages. Um, I usually have 15 when I preach a 45-minute message, so we'll see how long you have. You don't have a discussion group today, right? Oh, you do? I think she just made that up. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll get through the material and whatever we don't cover, I'm happy to send this to you. Um, it's my summary of what the Gospel of John is. Martin Luther said, the Gospel of John is a uniquely tender and accurate gospel. Other commentators in the past have said it presents God who strides over the earth. Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, writing about all the gospels, when they were written, who wrote them, why they were written, says this about the gospel of John. John was urged on by his disciples and moved by the spirit. He composed a spiritual gospel. It's the only of the four gospels given that specific description. A spiritual gospel. One individual said, the gospel of John has a mysterious quality to it. It's easily graspable in one sense, but profoundly elusive in another. John has intricately woven together brand new material that you don't find in the other gospels. He adds new stories, new themes, new debates, new dialogues, new dogma that he presents. New details about stories that we do know from the other Gospels as he presents Jesus in a fresh way about 30 years after the other Gospels were written. And if you compare the Gospel of John to Matthew, for example, Matthew gives us a picture of Jesus as the long-awaited Jewish king. Luke is the most exhaustive, the longest of the Gospels. He has 1,100 more words than Matthew, who's the second longest of the Gospels. And he presents Jesus as the global Savior. When you read Mark, you're reading a very fast-paced story of Jesus. Mark says 41 times, immediately, 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 immediately. 37 of those words appear in the first 11 chapters. It's as if he's trying to get to the cross because chapter 11 begins the last seven days of Jesus' life. It's as if he can't get to the final Passion Week. And so he says 37 times, immediately, immediately, immediately. And then when he gets to chapter 11, Monday of the Passion Week, he slows down. From 11 to 16, four times he says immediately. He wants to focus on the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, when you compare Mark, Mark his content, 92% of Mark is in Matthew. And 95 percent of Mark is in Matthew and Luke. When you look at John, 92 percent of John doesn't appear anywhere in Matthew, Mark or Luke. So when you have Matthew, Mark and Luke, significant overlap between the three, only eight percent of John overlaps with the material in Matthew, Mark and Luke. That's significant, which should prompt you to ask the question, why would John write such a different gospel? Thirty or so years after the last gospel was written, forty years after Mark was written and Matthew. But when you read the Gospel of John, it kind of feels like going through a museum. You begin to see portraits of Jesus in various scenes. You see Jesus talking to a man sitting under a fig tree in chapter one, Nathaniel that is. You see Jesus at a wedding celebrating with his family and friends. You see Jesus cleaning the temple, kicking animals out of the temple. That gives us license to men to kick cats because Jesus kicked them out as well. You see Jesus talking to a woman by the well about him being the savior of the world. You see Jesus leaning over a man who was sick for 38 years, sitting by a pool, and he heals him. You see Jesus sitting on top of a hill, teaching and feeding about 25,000 people. You see Jesus kneeling on the dirt and writing something as he's about to forgive a prostitute for her life of sin. You see Jesus shouting at the Festival of Boots, I am the one who can give you the water of life. I am the one who is the light of the world. You see Jesus weeping by a tomb because his friend Lazarus has died. You see Jesus being anointed with oil in John chapter 12 by a former prostitute. You see Jesus leaning over the filthy feet of his disciples Washing them. And the only time in the entire gospel where Judas says something to his disciples, do what I do. That's the only time he said, do what I just did. Wash the feet of other people. You can imagine Jesus in that moment looking into the eyes of Judas as he washes his feet. As if to beg him not to betray him just moments later. You see Jesus standing with a disfigured face. With a crown on his head dripping with blood, spit dripping from his face, as he stands next to Pilate who says, Behold your king. And in response, people say, We will not have this man reign over us. You see Jesus hanging on the cross. And just before he says, It is finished, he says, John, behold your mother. He entrusts the care of his mother to his beloved disciple. But then you go into a different room in the museum and you see this large painting and it's different. It's more bright. There's a bright sky and there's an empty tomb and the stone has been rolled away. And then you turn a little bit and you see Jesus in the garden, standing and talking to tearful Mary. You see Jesus stretching out his arms to Thomas and says, look, touch and believe. You see, Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. Final instructions to Simon Peter about what it means to follow him and to disciple or to shepherd his people. John, all of those stories are brand new to John, by the way. John is filled with images of Christ that we haven't read about yet in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so as you read John for the rest of the year, begin to note some of those new stories. Begin to identify the details that are distinct from what you see in the other Gospels. You see Jesus expressing wisdom. You see Jesus emotional as he becomes sensitive to the impact of sin on the lives of the people. You see Jesus being presented as the Son of God, as the Christ or the Messiah, So new characters are introduced into the story of Jesus, new theological lessons, new debates, new miracles, new dogma, and a new beginning. John reaches past his birthday, all the way back to eternity past, to talk about the Logos being incarnated. The other Gospels don't do that. And he reaches into eternity future as he creates a new humanity that will worship him forever. That is the uniqueness of the gospel of John, 92% being different. So what is that material? Well, John 1 through 6 is all new. 1 through 5, rather. The first 12 verses of chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle, and the resurrection are the only two miracles that appear in all four gospels. But then beginning after verse 13 in chapter 6, everything else in chapter 6 is new chapter 7 through 11 everything in those chapters is brand new material the beginning of chapter 12 is the triumphal entry into jerusalem which appears in the other gospels but then when you get into verse 20 everything after verse 20 is brand new material in chapter 12 chapters 13 through 17 is all brand new material you get into chapter 18 through 21 and that is the passion the crucifixion and then the resurrection of jesus while it's similar information, it's his death and resurrection, a lot of the details are brand new in that material. For example, it is finished. That statement only appears in John. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, the seven signs that are presented in the gospel of John. The the word miracle never appears in the gospel of John. Instead of miracles, he calls them signs. So John takes a different angle as he tries to give us the story of Jesus. So the wedding in Canaan, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the healing of the crippled man in chapter 5, the blind man in chapter 9, Lazarus' resurrection, the washing of the disciples' feet, the eating by the Sea of Galilee, all that is brand new information in the Gospel of John. You know it, and sometimes our mind kind of just begins to weave those stories into various Gospels. You don't really know which Gospel, what belongs, right? What it belongs. But now you know, this is an overview of information that only appears in John. But guess what's missing? There is no birth of Jesus in the Gospel of John. The infancy narrative is omitted. Satan's temptation of Jesus doesn't appear in the Gospel of John. There's not a single instance of a demon being cast out in the Gospel of John. The list of the names of the disciples do not appear in the Gospel of John. There's no prayer in Gethsemane. There's no transfiguration. The cleansing of the temple is at the very beginning of the story, whereas in the synoptic gospels, it's at the end. There are no Sadducees or tax collectors in the gospel of John. It's only Pharisees and the Jews. The I am sayings, I'm the great, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door of the sheep. That's all in the gospel of John. Seven of those sayings. The seven signs only appear in the gospel of John. The farewell discourse in chapter 13 through 17, that's only in John the high priestly prayer john 17 only in the gospel of john peter and john running to the tomb only in the gospel of john so the question that you should be thinking is why would john give us a gospel in the year 95 five years before he dies a few years before he writes first, second third john and the book of revelation why would he give us a gospel that is so different And what prompted him to write a gospel three decades after the other gospels have been written and have been circulating around the Roman Empire? Well, some people have given us different answers to that question. Some have said this is a theology, a biography about God, the Father. God is presented as the Father 120 times in the Gospel of John. There's certainly a feature that God is a Father. And so they say, when Jesus says, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. It's as if Jesus came exclusively to explain who God is. In John 17, when Jesus prays to his Father, he says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I have made your name known to the disciples. So Jesus affirms that he came to make God known. So some have said it's about God the Father. This is a biography of God the Father. Others have said this is a work that is intended to correct error. By the beginning of the second century, and really at the end of the first century, people began to deny that Jesus had a physical body and that he was actually a spiritual individual. And so they began to say he is just an emanation from God's He's a created God multiple layers down. And so in order to fix that error about Jesus, John writes this gospel, presenting Jesus as a man. Walking around, eating, sleeping, crying, being tired. And so to fix that, some have said, it's a work that fixes heresy. Others have said, it's a trial. Multiple times, 48 times, the word witness appears. It's a legal term. It's as if he's putting Jesus on trial. And in chapter 5, it says that Jesus says to the Jewish people, there are four witnesses that testify about me. John the Baptist, my works, my father, and the scriptures. So it's as if these witnesses are brought forward in the trial scene, confessing who Jesus is and explaining to the reader who he is. Others have said it's all about integrating the Samaritans into the church. Acts 8 is when we see the first Samaritan being converted. And then in John 4, we have almost an entire chapter devoted to the Samaritans, the woman and then the villagers of Saqqar in Samaria. And so now the story, it's as if the gospel wants to tell us this is how the Samaritans began to follow Jesus. Recently, about a couple years ago now, some began to say, John is written to replace the gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest, it's incomplete, we need to fix the missing material. So therefore, John is written in order to replace Mark as a more complete presentation of the life of Jesus. Others have said it's just an evangelistic tract. It's something you give to your unbelieving friend. How many of you have done that? Raise your hand, come on, confess. There we go, I've done it. It's kind of complicated to give the first book, just so you kind of think twice next time. Others have said because the temple was destroyed in the year 70, the Jewish people's identity was rattled. They had no idea how to worship God without the sacrifices in the temple. And so John writes in order to help people understand that their identity is not in the physical structure. It's not in the physical sacrifices. It's in Jesus who says in John 4, you're not worshiping God on this temple, on that temple, on this hill, or that hill. Remember the conversation with Samaritan woman? You worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, he is correcting their understanding of where you worship God, and there is no need for a temple. So some have said it's a way to give peace to the readers in the first century, the Jewish people, that you can survive without the temple. Others have begun to say recently that it's all about Jesus being the replacement of Moses as the greatest of all prophets. Moses is the one who talks about Jesus, about the coming prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is the one who establishes the festivals and worshiping God in a structure. The tabernacle initially, then it went to the temple. And so now you have this conflict in some of the minds of the people, and you'll see that in chapter nine, especially, where people take aside the Jewish leaders and say, "We are Moses' disciples. You, blind man who's now healed, you are his disciple." If they want to be identifying with Moses, not with Jesus, there's this conflict. The most popular answer to that question, why did John write his gospel? It's a self-reflection of Christians at the end of the first century who are being persecuted and who are struggling in their identity. And so what you're reading in the gospel of John is simply a self-reflection, a struggle in their mind of what it means to follow Jesus. So the history begins to be changed and it's not something that we can even trust. That is the most popular view out there today in New Testament scholarship. I deny it, and I'll explain to you why. Those are the options, and there's more, but those are kind of the the popular ones that have been offered on why John wrote the Gospel of John. Well, if you're asking that question, you're in luck. Because in John 20, verse 31, he tells you exactly why he wrote this gospel. This is what he says. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John is doing here is what I'd like to call Christological discipleship. He wants to present Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Those are Christological titles. Who is Jesus? And by believing you may have life in his name. Believe appears twice in this verse and the reward for believing is life through his name or in his name so now john gives you two reasons why he wrote this gospel i'd like to present a portrait of christ to you and i'd like to make sure that you believe in this portrait and if you do you will have life some have called the gospel of john the gospel of belief because the word believe appears 98 times in the gospel of john And it only appears seven times in all the synoptic gospels combined. Do you not see why people would say it's a gospel of belief? 98 verses 7 occurrences. And those 98, 93 of them have to do with believing in Jesus. The others believing Moses and so on. In the synoptics, only five of those seven have to do with believing in Jesus. That is not to say that the synoptic gospels were not trying to provoke faith in Jesus. That is to say they use different terminology to do that. But John consistently says, believe, 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 93 times in reference to Jesus. And that's why it appears twice in the purpose statement. The goal for this gospel is that you would believe. So that can be one way for us to dissect the purpose. It's Christology and it's discipleship, following Jesus, Christological discipleship. But what was happening at the end of the first century in the year 95 that would have prompted John to write this gospel? He's about 100 years old when he writes this gospel. He has been following Jesus faithfully for about 65 years. He's the last surviving apostle. All of his friends have been martyred. None of them are left. He's now trained up a generation of disciples, even from the quote that I read at the very beginning. His disciples encouraged him to write this gospel. And many of them were also martyred. So what was happening at the end of the first century in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, that's what he's writing this gospel from, that would have caused them to sit down and write such a beautiful masterpiece. By the way, just as an aside, the earliest New Testament manuscript in the Greek language that we have is a portion of the Gospel of John. It dates to the year 125, which is about 25 years after John died. And it's important because of our efforts to try to reconstruct the New Testament in the Greek language. So what happened? Well, persecution happened. 30 years prior, Nero began a severe persecution against Christians in the city of Rome. Many of them fled to Asia Minor, to Ephesus, to the place where John is living, pastoring, and where he writes this gospel. So there's a community of believers, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, were written to that same community, who are trying to follow Jesus in the context of persecution. If you look at the gospel of John specifically, every single chapter has instances of persecution every single chapter so if you're trying to understand the context and what saturates his mind it's persecution it's hostility it's opposition to jesus or his followers and the way john frames that is by using three phrases he says there was a fear of the jews that permeated this gospel experience chapter 7 chapter 9 chapter 12 chapter 16 chapter 19 chapter 20 The Jewish people, the Jews, rather as a category, as a character, were the leaders in that time. And they were the ones who were trying to preserve their hold on the Sanhedrin. They were the ones who said in chapter 11, If we let this man go unchecked, Rome will come in, take our place as leaders and our nation away from us. So there was a political motivation for them to suppress any interest in Jesus, any sympathy for Jesus, any belief in Jesus. So the fear of the Jews is a phrase that reappears in the Gospel of John as a way to demonstrate that there's hostility and opposition to Jesus. The second phrase is the world. The world appears 78 times in the Gospel of John, used in five different ways. Most of the time it's used negatively. The world is hostile to God, the Father, to Jesus, the Son, to the Holy Spirit. It hates the disciples of Jesus. So whatever Jesus experienced from the world, John 15 says, if the world hated me, it will definitely hate you. So the world is presented as a character that is in hostility to Jesus. And then this phrase that only appears three times, only in the Gospel of John, nowhere else in all of Greek Christian literature. Expulsion, from the synagogue. It appears in chapter 9, in chapter 12, and in chapter 16. The scholars have written many, 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 many pages, and I've had to read many of them for my study on what that means. What does it mean to be expelled from the synagogue in that time period? Well, it was a way for the Jewish leadership. To, ha- to weaponize the membership of the people in the synagogue against them if they became followers of Jesus because everything was centered at the synagogue. Your kids went to school at the synagogue. Worship happened at the synagogue. Weddings happened at the synagogue. The judicial system, the court system was established in the synagogue. So if you were severed as a member from the synagogue, you lost your social standing. You became a social leper. You had no access to the community whatsoever. Imagine all of your social services being cut off immediately. That is what it meant to be in the synagogue or expelled from the synagogue. And the Jewish people began to apply that pressure onto the followers of Jesus as a way to stifle any interest in Jesus. And what we see happening He's in chapter 5, there's a few verses on the screen, you'll see this hostility that begins to build. In chapter 1, it says, he came to his own, his own rejected him. Chapter 5, after he healed the man who was sick for 38 years, it says, Then the Jewish people began to persecute Jesus, seeking all the more to kill him. In chapter 8, they pick up stones to kill him. In chapter 9, they revile the blind man for believing in Jesus. In chapter 11, they make an official plot to kill Jesus. In chapter 12, they even want to kill Lazarus, who was just resurrected from the dead. They want to kill him now too in order to suppress any interest in Jesus. In chapter 15, what Jesus says, what I mentioned a minute ago, if the world hates you, it will hate, if it hates me, it'll hate you. It persecuted me. It'll persecute you. And then in chapter 16, he says, they will expel you from the synagogues. And when they do so and kill you, they think they're worshiping God. The entire gospel is drenched in the context of hostility and opposition and conflict and persecution and violence against Jesus. Such that in chapter 7, verse 13, it says this, no one was willing to speak openly about him these aren't true followers these are people who are just in the crowd listening but they are so afraid of the consequences of following jesus that they would only whisper about him that's chapter seven we see that happening with the blind man's parents in chapter nine when the jewish leaders come to them and say is this your son They don't even want to admit that this is their son. He's old enough. Why don't you go talk to him? That's the fear that dominates them. And it says, because they were afraid to be put out of the synagogue. 922. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are called secret disciples. They secretly go and embalm the body of Jesus in chapter 19. Because of the fear of the Jews. They were afraid of their own colleagues in the Sanhedrin. That's the, the atmosphere that reigns in this time. In chapter 20, the disciples are sitting behind a locked door. It says because they were afraid of the Jews. Whether you're a commoner in chapter nine, a leader of influence in chapter 19, or you're a disciple, a true follower of Jesus, everybody is afraid to associate with Jesus because of the consequences of being his follower. And then multiple times, John talks about defection. In order to prevent you from defecting, John 16, Jesus says, I'm warning you about what's to come. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds about 25,000 people. And then he says, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And in verse 60, it says, that's too much. We can't handle that. We're not going to become cannibals. And they walk away. The meaning of that statement is in verse 56 to eat my flesh and drink my blood is to abide in me he's talking about an intimate relationship with his followers verse 66 many of his disciples walked away and no longer walked with him that's defection after being fed after seeing the miracles after hearing some of the greatest preaching ever they walk away so john is writing into this environment This is the religious ecology of that time. And what John is trying to do is to help people understand that, yes, you might be betrayed by your neighbors in chapter 9. Yes, you might lose your social standing as a leader in chapter 12. It says, they were more concerned about the glory of men than the glory of God. Therefore, they did not confess Jesus as Messiah. That's John 12. So, yes, you may lose your social standing in the society. Yes, you might be expelled from the synagogue. But John says, I'm calling you to consider Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and believe in his name. That's the purpose statement. Why would you do that? Why would you be willing to sacrifice everything that you have, that you own, all that you have earned over all those years of climbing the ladder in that society, by simply associating with an individual? Why would you jeopardize all that? John's answer is you gain 26 different rewards and benefits for following Jesus. But really, those 26 collapse under three because those are distinct to the gospel of John. You won't find them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as an incentive, as a motivation to follow Jesus. The first one is you are adopted into the family of God. John 1 Verse 12 says, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's adoption. That's membership in the family of God. You may lose your membership in the synagogue, but you will be a part of the divine family. The second benefit is abiding with the Trinity. The entire Trinity in John 14, it says, and comes and abides with you. The Spirit, the Father, and the Son distinctly mentioned in John 14 as directly, permanently abiding with the believer. And then the last unique benefit is you will be called a friend of Jesus, just John 15. And in the context of that world, that meant that you would be integrated into a royal circle of the King who had this small group of people that he trusted and sent as his envoys, as his governors, to various parts of the world because they were his friends, royal subjects. I just thought about this an hour ago. There you go. Maccabee snuck in. <laughs> and John 15 isn't about, I'm going to be your buddy-buddy. We can hang out together and have sparkling water on Friday nights no, I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to elevate your status into the inner circle of the king, just like the emperor had and the Jewish leaders and the Egyptian pharaohs had and the Greek kings had from Alexander to Augustus. All of those imperial figures had their, their little circle. And Judas says, I am the king. And so he integrates his followers into that same circle. But we go back to the main purpose, Christological discipleship. From the very beginning, John focuses on Jesus as he develops the Christology by presenting him as Messiah. John 1.41, Andrew tells his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. John one forty one john 4 25 and 29 the samaritan woman and then the whole village says this is the savior of the world john 6 so john 20 in the purpose statement this is the messiah that's the word and then 19 times in the entire gospel the word christ is used which is the word messiah twice the word messiah is used 19 times christ in other words from chapter 1 to chapter 20 beginning and the end from the very first disciples to the very to the purpose statement john presents jesus as the messiah secondly he presents him as the prophet who is to come into the world deuteronomy 18 prophesies that moses says when he comes listen to him he's come and in chapter 4 the samaritan woman says are you the, pro- the prophet who's to come In chapter 6 the crowds is talking is he the prophet who's to come chapter 7 the crowd says he is the prophet chapter 9 the blind man being healed says he is the prophet it's not just a prophet no he is the prophet from deuteronomy 18 john also presents jesus as the son of god john 149 nathaniel says you are the son of god and john 20 verse 31 believe in him as the messiah and as the son of god And then there's other places in John where that appears. In other words, Jesus has been presented as the Messiah, as the prophet, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man. Chapter 5, the context is, I will judge. God has entrusted all judgment to me, Jesus says in verse 22. I'm the only one who will judge as the Son of Man. That alludes back to to Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man receives all power and authority from the Almighty, and he reigns. Chapter 9, the blind man and Jesus meets after the miracle is finished. And he says, who is the son of man? And Jesus says, I'm the one speaking to you. And then it says, and he worshiped him. He's the son of man. And he's also the king of Israel. In John 1.49, when Nathaniel says, you are the son of God, he also says, you are the king of Israel. Chapter 3, Jesus talks about entering his kingdom with Nicodemus. In chapter 6, the crowd wants to make him king by force after being fed for free. In chapter 12, as he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowd is chanting, this is the king of Israel. In chapter 19, 10 times it is mentioned in the conversation with Pilate, are you the king of Israel? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. From chapter 1 to chapter 19, Jesus is presented as king. That's the Christology we're talking about in the gospel of John. And then John says, because of that truth about Jesus, here's how you respond. Follow me. 17 times in the gospel of John, there's the imagery of following Jesus that appears. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 37. You see, in verse, that's the beginning of the first disciples. And then in verse 43, it's repeated when Jesus directly tells Philip, follow me. In chapter 21, Jesus directly tells Peter, follow me. What you have in ancient literature, when something is mentioned at the beginning and at the end of a a work, it is emphasized. It's the main idea or one of the main ideas. And so the fact that he puts it in chapter 1 with the first disciples and at the very, very, very end, as he prophesies Peter's martyrdom and says, follow me, that's the expectation. But he also says, believe In chapter 1, verse 12, we talked about this already. Believe in his name. In chapter 20, believe in Jesus. Again, the beginning and at the end. And at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about eternal life. At the end of chapter 20, he talks about eternal life. All of those themes are prominent in the Gospel of John because they're placed at the beginning and at the end. But the connection to Christological discipleship happens through this term, disciple. The word disciple appears more times in the gospel of john than in the other gospels the word apostle appears only once in the gospel of john but it appears nine times in the synoptic gospels the 12 is a category appears only four times and three of those four are in one passage where is it 27 references in the synoptics disciple 78 times 74 rather to refer to jesus 78 in total disciples of moses for example 74 times it's in reference to disciples of Jesus. What he's trying to do by moving away from the apostle term and from the term of the 12, he says following Jesus is inclusive. Anybody can be a disciple of Jesus. You don't have to be in the group of the 12. The invitation to follow, the invitation to believe, the invitation to receive and and eat and drink Jesus, all of that language is open to everybody. And this is what it means to be a disciple. You can see the seven expressions on the screen. Believing in him, in the Father, and in his word. Loving Jesus and his followers. Obeying him. Bearing fruit. Witnessing for him. Hating your life. And abiding in Jesus. And when we consider the ancient understanding of what it meant to be a disciple, it's all about allegiance and loyalty. Because John is inviting people into a personal relationship with Christ a personal attachment to Christ. And he'll do that in three parts. Three parts. The Gospel of John can be divided as follows. Chapter 1 through 12 presents the public ministry of Jesus. Chapters 13 through 17 present the private ministry of Jesus. And chapters 18 through 21 present the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. How do we know? In chapter 1, verse 12... Or verse eleven, rather, it says he came to his own, the Jewish people. That's all that means, and his own rejected him. You go to chapter thirteen, verse one. It says this: He loved his own. Now there's a his own as a subsection of his own. Do you see that? That changes the focus from. The public ministry, all the Jewish people that are willing to listen to him. To now only the 12 disciples in chapters 13 through 17 who are his immediate followers. And John 1 through John 12 begins and closes with a call to follow him. Follow the light. It also begins and closes with believing in him. It also closes and opens with offering eternal life to those who would believe in him. And then this is what it says in John 12. These things Jesus spoke, verse 36, and he went away and hid himself from them. That's the ending to the public ministry of Jesus. He's done. He's shifting focus in chapter 13 to the private ministry conversation with his disciples which again as i said begins in verse one his own and it says he loved them to the end in verse one of chapter 13 and the very last verse of chapter 17 which is the ending of the private ministry he says this i have made your name known to them and will make it known to them so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and i in them love begins and closes the private ministry of jesus And guess what? 44 times the word agape, you know that word, appears in the gospel of John. 31 of the 44 appears in chapters 13 through 17. Do you want to know what the main theme of 13 through 17 is? Love. 31 of 44 references in this gospel. Because Jesus wants to impress this thing onto his immediate followers. I love you. You need to love me. And you need to love each other. And he says this over and over and over that's the flow of the gospel and so as you think about how the gospel is put together at the very end chapter 18 shifts focus completely to the passion and the resurrection of jesus christ and that's a familiar story so i'm not going to get too deep into it now but as i get toward the end of this session let me show you how each chapter is put together okay i have two minutes Chapter 1 immediately launches into the royal messianic Christology of Jesus Christ. He is the king of Israel. He is the son of man. He's the son of God, rather. He's the son of man a few verses earlier. And he is the Messiah. And he's the light of the world. And he's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's all chapter 1. He immediately introduces Christology. This is who we're talking about. Then in chapter 2, he now gives us an introduction to Jesus' miraculous ability at the wedding in Cana, which presents Jesus as the bridegroom. And if you missed that point of that story, in chapter 3, verse 28 through 30, it says he is the bridegroom. So Jesus is celebrating a wedding, does a physical miracle, one of the first of the seven signs which are connected to belief because it says in verse 11, the disciples saw the miracle of the water being turned to wine and they believed in him and they saw his glory. Then Jesus shifts as he launches his ministry from that point forward to cleanse the temple. This is my father's house. You have polluted it. He's going to cleanse the place where God is worshipped until the temple is destroyed at the very beginning of his ministry. Most likely he cleansed it at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. That's the best way to reconcile the different placements of that story in the four gospels. And then he shifts towards why he came. He came to offer eternal life. So in chapter 3, he offers it to a Jewish elite, Nicodemus. And then it says, God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the introduction and the offer of eternal life to everybody. The royal official in chapter 4, it says, believed and received eternal life. Probably from Herod's palace. The Samaritans in chapter 4 confess he is the savior of the world. And he brings the water of life. So now life, eternal life, is offered to a Jewish elite, to Samaritans, and to an individual who works in Herod's palace. Then he shifts focus in chapter 5 to talk about Jesus being examined by the Jewish leaders. Who are you? What gives you the right to heal this man who was sick for 38 years on the Sabbath? And the immediate response we read in 5.16 and 5.18, they sought all the more to kill him after that. Nobody would mess with Sabbath-keeping. Not even Jesus. And so Jesus is being evaluated. Just as he was evaluated in chapter 4 by the Samaritan woman who finally says, you are the savior of the world. And you have to understand, she says that under the shadow of the temple to Augustus, the emperor. Who at the entrance, it says, Augustus, the savior of the world. She saw that every single day passing through town. And then Jesus shows up and says, it's not augustus it's me i'm the savior of the world and she finally confesses it so in chapter five jesus says you search the scriptures thinking in them you have eternal life and these speak of me but you refuse to come and believe in me and therefore you will die in your sins so now this there's this juxtaposition between eternal life and hostility increasing in chapters 5 through 12 Eternal life is mentioned 37 of 56 times in chapters 5 through 12. In other words, the harsher the hostility becomes as you move from chapter 5 to chapter 12, the more references there are to eternal life. As if to incite you, invite you, yes, you might be killed. Yes, you might be persecuted like I am being, but eternal life awaits you. That's why John places most of those references, more than half, in those chapters 5 through 12. And so Jesus is now presenting himself, or John presents Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Judge in chapter five, verses twenty through twenty-two, as the Prophet. You get to chapter six, and the idea of Prophet is being elevated. They ate. They confess, "This is the Prophet." We think he is. It's a question mark in their minds still. And then Jesus says, "Great. Let me work off of that." The last Prophet you respected was Moses. He gave you manna from heaven wasn't him it was my father but i am the true manna they lived physically i bring you the true manna from heaven and you will live forever that's all chapter six and in response to that offer many walk away and refuse to follow him in chapter seven jesus travels to jerusalem to the festival of the tabernacles and he stands up and shouts it says in chapter seven come to me and drink of the water of life Come to me and you will have the light of life within you. In chapter 8, that provokes the Jewish leaders and they say, you're of the devil. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, you are. <laughs> they go back and forth. No, you're demonic. No, you're demonic. <laughs> we're of Abraham. No, you're not. You'd love me if you we were of Abraham. It's, it's pretty funny if you can you know, imagine a little bit of what it was like to just go back and forth and insults. <laughs> And then chapter 9 kicks in. Jesus just declared in 8.12, I am the light of the world. In chapter 9, he says, let me explain what that means. I'm going to physically give somebody eyes so he can see the light once again. Or having never seen it, rather. And the man says, he is the prophet. He is the son of man. And then Jesus goes into chapter 10. And now we have the festival of Hanukkah. Jesus celebrates Hanukkah in chapter 10 in verse 21. Verse 21. And at that festival of lights, that's what Hanukkah is. He says, I am the light of the world once again. Chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 9. Repeatedly, Jesus says, I am the one who will bring light. And he says, I'm the good shepherd because I lay down my life so that you may live forever. And then he proves that by resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. You want to know if I have life, uh, power to give you life? Let me show it to you with Lazarus. And it says at the beginning of chapter 11, he just kind of lingered and hung out wherever he was, right? They sent a telegram, their version of a telegram to him, and said, hey, come, Lazarus is sick. Can you come and help him? And Jesus just kind of said, "Ah, he can wait. He dies in order to be resurrected to prove that Jesus is the resurrection, and the life. What he offered back in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. And that moves us to chapter 12. Or finally, after seven times, it says in John, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Chapter 12, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. And when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, he says. In other words, the hour of his glorification through his crucifixion has come. Prompted by Greeks, a coalition of Greeks coming to to them and say, we wish to see Jesus. And that was the moment where now the, you could say the world community in Israel is ready to look at Jesus beyond just a miracle worker. And so Jesus says, the hour has come. Unless a seed falls into the ground that dies, it bears no fruit. Talking about himself, but also appealing to the people listening because he has to expect death from them as he'll do in chapter 15. And after all these offers, Follow the light, believe in the light, follow me, believe in the water of life, the light of life. He goes and he hides himself from them. And he focuses on his disciples in chapters 13 through 17. And in those chapters, he promises the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. He promises to come back and take them so that they may be with him where he is, John 14. He promises that the world will hate you. And in that moment, verse 27 of chapter 15, you will be my witnesses because you've been with me since the beginning. And I expect you to testify about me and my identity. But don't be afraid when the world and its ruler hates you because I have overcome the world. So he's giving them previews of coming persecution and a promise of protection. And in John 17, many of you probably memorize this verse. Keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world. They have a job to do. I sent them, John 17, as you sent me. But as they're fulfilling this mission, protect them from the evil one. There's that promise of protection. And then we get into 18 through 21, the third section. And now you have Jesus ending his prayer. The hour of power and darkness is what it says has come. It's as if all of Satan's efforts, all of his demons have now been brought from all the parts of the world to Gethsemane to try to crush the Messiah, the hour and power of darkness. That's that moment in John 18, as Jesus is betrayed, beaten, crucified. And you know what's uniquely featured in John 18 that isn't discussed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? As Jesus has been interrogated by the high priest, you know what it says at the beginning? He was asking him about his disciples. Discipleship takes center stage at the trial of Jesus. And immediately, we move from Jesus in the temple court to Peter by a fire, warming himself with the people who just arrested Jesus and they ask him twice aren't you his disciple that's the word they use and he denies it back in chapter 13 he says even if everybody abandons you i will die for you and when the moment came to actually confess that he is a disciple he doesn't and he begins to swear calling judgment from god not cuss words The idea there is beginning to call cursing from God divine judgment if he's lying that he is not Jesus' disciple. Discipleship doesn't fade away. In chapter 12 or chapter 17, it takes center stage of the trial of Jesus. This is what John is trying to do. Here's Christ. Look at him. Believe in him. But this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in the moment when it gets tough and persecution comes into your life, you have to be able to stand up and confess, yes, I am his follower. And Peter falls and we know he goes and weeps bitterly. But in that context, as I said a minute ago, Jesus is also being presented as the king. 10 times king 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 the kingdom that he rules is not of this world and then once the crucifixion is over and you get into the resurrection and now the the two disciples Peter and John run to the tomb see the empty tomb and it says in verse 8 of chapter 20 and they believed they finally put it all together they finally believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and of course we have this magnificent confession from Thomas in 2028 When he sees Jesus, my Lord and my God, the greatest of all confessions in the gospel of John. Christological discipleship is all about recognizing who Jesus is and then reorienting your life around that truth. That is why John wrote the gospel of John, because hostility and opposition was closing in from every single direction. And the disciples are afraid in 2017. They're sitting behind locked doors. And Jesus shows up, breathes on them, gives them the power of the Holy Spirit, urging them to follow him and change the world. And three times in the Gospel of John, John appeals to the readers and says, Are you a true disciple? 831. If you are a true disciple, then you will Remain in my word. And John 13 34, if you are a true disciple, you will love other disciples. John 15:8, if you are a true disciple, you will produce much fruit and prove to be my disciple. The call of the Gospel of John is to follow Jesus from chapter 1 to chapter 21. It's to believe in Jesus, it's to love Jesus. It's to reject this world. It's to separate. It's to witness for him. It's to continuously abide in his word. It's to obey his commands. It's to hate this world. It's to be willing to give your life for your confession in chapter 12, even if you are mocked and ridiculed and possibly killed in chapter 16. That's his message. And in response, John says, God will adopt you into his family He will send the Holy Spirit to abide with you permanently. And he will call you a royal friend of King Jesus. So John's purpose is simple. He calls us to follow Jesus faithfully, no matter the cost. I hope you see that in the rest of the year in the Gospel of John. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness to us that you, through your Holy Spirit, prompted the Apostle John to write the Gospel of John. We thank you for preserving it for us that we can sit here this afternoon and for the rest of the year to study it. I pray that you would provide fresh insights into Christ for every single individual who's a part of EWG, that they would love Christ more. And that they would follow him more faithfully. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.